Welcome to Medical Expert to Football. I'm Taiwa Deshikbin, your host. One of my missions as the as the director uh, for the medical uh, committee is to make sure their needs and their wishes and their voices are heard the most because it's yeah. absolutely athlete centric. It has to be, and maybe some of that bias comes from me looking at Tony going through um, an ACL, a meniscus, an Achilles, uh, two groin repairs. That's Dr. Holly Silvers Grinelli, a PT and researcher. She's also the owner of Velocity Physical Therapy. She's held many roles within FIFA, many of the professional sporting leagues. But today, we're going to chat about her work in the MLS. She's the chair of the Major League Soccer's Medical Assessment Research Committee. We talk about her New Jersey upbringing, PhD differences in the States versus Europe, the impact of centralized medical electronic reporting in the MLS, and of course, ended off with tendon rehabilitation considerations for clinician as well as athletes. So sit back and enjoy. I was reading that you were actually from Kearney, Kearney New Jersey. Yes. Is that right? Yes, I'm actually here right now. Oh, is that <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yes. So <laughs> that's known as like- a soccer town, according to Google. In 1870, immigrants from Scotland and Ireland came to work, and these companies pretty much got the town booming. So, is soccer a huge part of your upbringing? Oh, absolutely. So, my mother's from London, my father's ancestry oh. is from Ireland, but absolutely, we grew up in this town and it was. Really, a lot of us were first uh, first generation kids from immigrant parents, and um, uh, in the spirit of full transparency, my brother in law is Tony Miola. So. Oh my god! <laughs> please don't say that. <laughs> you know, funny so. story was mm-hmm. I was looking up people that came from there that are like obviously men's national team. And I saw yeah. Tony, and I said, "Oh my gosh, that name is familiar." And I, it's only familiar because. I had reached out to him on LinkedIn a long time ago before I knew I wanted to be a sports journalist. And he had reached back out to me and genuinely gave me so much good advice that I said, oh my gosh, that's Tony. So that is your brother-in-law. He's married to my older sister, but we all grew up in the same town together. And then also Tab Ramos and John Harks are also from our hometown. So in the 1990 sort of 94 national team, we had Uh three starting players, like a three, three of the starting the eleven. We're from my hometown, which is sort of astounding. <laughs> you think incredible. it's a small town of 30,000 people. So yeah, because really... it sounds like a blue collared yes. you know, town, right? Yeah, very working class. We grew up sort of outside of Manhattan. You can see sort of the Manhattan skyline from our from my mother's doorstep. <laughs> and um, so you had sort of the the um, access to culture and museums, but it was, it was also like a little bit of a Pleasantville in terms of like, we never had a key to our house. You know, it was a very safe community to grow up on, grow up in, but we also had uh, obviously wonderful coaching. Like one of my youth soccer coaches was Huey O'Neill played for Celtic. Wow. <laughs> like it just, just fascinating. Cause we just, had, we, we had just no had idea. It. It's like, okay, no big deal. It was just, you know, we're it's sort of such a part of the culture, like on any given uh, weekend, you know, that the high school team would draw three to 4,000 fans for a game. Oh, it's just really, yeah. So it's really, you know, obviously I love the sport. I love the game. I love the research, but it's really part of my DNA. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, so 
when did you start playing in? Did you play all the way up until high school? What position? Yeah, I played. I was a central midfielder. I played in youth a little bit in high school and then um, did not play in college. But I uh, just thought I just loved I loved the sport and I just loved the sports medicine element of it. And it was interesting kind of getting back to Tony. I one of the reasons I went into examining the notion of ACL mitigation, he tore his ACL uh, playing when he was playing for Kansas city at the time. And it was mm-hmm. just such a fluke thing. It was on a, it was on a goal kick, you know, it was just such a random mechanism. And at the time I was just finishing physical therapy school and I wound up meeting up with his surgeon, who was Dr. Bert Mandelbaum, who was the mm-hmm. team physician for the national team and still is involved with the national team. And just like, we could, we could do better here. There's, there should be some areas of improvement. So yeah. The ongoing joke in my family is that, well, I'm glad my brother-in-law says, I'm glad tearing my ACL has made your career. Your career. It's a lemonade out of lemons. That's funny. It sounds like I should probably get him as a guest just oh, to talk absolutely. about his experience. He's in your world. Yeah. He's, yeah, uh, he's uh, a he's broadcaster. So yeah, yep, yep, yeah. Yep. be a good guest. I'll, I'll put in a good word for you. Yes, you should. Please, please, please. Well, well, in case anyone ever goes to New Jersey, because I'll be honest with you, I have never been to New Jersey and I just mm-hmm. imagine it being so busy and just, mm-hmm. I don't know. It's, I just mm-hmm. want to be able to relax. Are there sure. places in New Jersey that you would highly recommend someone to visit if they're on vacation or sure. um, if they have some downtime on like a business trip? Where would that be? Oh, absolutely. So of course I'm biased because <clears throat> I was born and raised here, but um, I think unfortunately people's sort of stereotypical observation of New Jersey is not often um, held in the highest <laughs> regard because you fly into Newark airport, the ports are there, you know, it's just, it's not exactly particularly sightly. However, if you get to the North, to the West, it's absolutely gorgeous. And then this time of year, I mean, the beaches are phenomenal. So we're, we're heading there later today, but um, the, the Jersey shore We're my father-in-law lives near Bradley beach. Um, so we will head there and nice. visit him, but um, it's absolutely beautiful. It's ha- it happens to be a beautiful day today and yeah. it should be, but it's really um, a really, really wonderful place. I mean, the coastline extends for hundreds of miles and um also Long Beach Island is really pretty too and there's a lot of state parks it's, it's really a pretty place particularly the fall okay so, yeah. now I was born in Brooklyn New York but I don't okay. consider myself a New Yorker because I've only lived there for two years okay but New Jersey folks are they just like New Yorkers just gotta get it done get out my way sure. what's their personality <laughs> there's, like? there's a little a bit of an intensity I remember moving when I moved to California for graduate school many many years ago I remember feeling oh, things are really slow here <laughs> so <laughs> but and that's we're, I think because I grew up in northern New Jersey so it's very um kind of similar in terms of pace to Manhattan but um if the further south you go, the further west you go, it's much more um, balanced, if you will. Okay. <laughs> so, so that's yeah, where I need just, to go. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and I just think, you know, it, it's funny how obviously it's not a very large state, but there's really different personalities based on where you are uh, okay. geographically in the state. Yeah, it's interesting. Good to know. A lot well, of good food. A lot of really loyal people and very loyal, loyal to what sports teams? I'm trying to think. Uh, New Jersey. Hmm. Oh, I think one of the wonderful things, like so, there's uh, well, we have two of everything. So (laughs) there's Yankees, Mets, Jets, and Giants. 
you have um, Devils Rangers, you have um, obviously NYCFC and Red Bull. Right. Uh, and you have uh, Devils, I mean, did we say Devils Rangers? Um, yeah, there's really two of everything. That's impressive. <laughs> so you can, yeah. So you're loyal to all these teams, despite you being um, involved with all the other clubs around yeah, the world. Yeah, well, I can't have any allegiance <laughs> in MLS, but, right. <laughs> but I'm an equal opportunity supporter of the league, but I would say we're Giants and Yankees fans nice. and Devils. Sort of okay. Things, yeah. Well, I know you're on vacation now, sure. mm-hmm. but you got two kids, you're married, mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. do all this stuff, which we'll get into. What's like a nice little family thing you guys like to do when you have free time? If you ever have free time, which yeah. I can imagine. <laughs> we carve it out. Um, yeah. We live, we're very lucky to live in Santa Monica, California. So we take full advantage. We're very outdoorsy. Um, oh. and the climate allows you to be outdoors all year round. We're really lucky. So, uh, beach day, we love to run. Um, the kids will still sort of with some bribery sit in the jog stroller so we can get them to go. <laughs> How old are they? Are they young? Uh, five and three. My son oh, will see music. So yeah. Young. So, so it's fun. And, uh, yeah, they, and they love to be outdoors and, you know, we just fully exploit that, um, that that component of living in Southern California. Yeah. You know, I wish I would have been paying more attention, but when Mm -hmm. I was out in California with Fox sports, Mm -hmm. I had to go to um, the studio. I think it's in Culver city, but it's right near Santa Monica. Why didn't I think like I could have stopped by Holly's (laughs) clinic, but I'm sure I'll be in California for some other reason. But how did you find your way all the way out to the West coast? Yeah, grad school. So I did my my graduate work there. And then, um, and then teamed up with Bert Mandelbaum. So I was their director of research for about 15 years at Santa Monica Orthopedic, which has since merged with Curlin and Job. So they're like Mm -hmm. more sort of the well known name, if you will. Um, And then I left to do my PhD at the University of Delaware. Uh, with Lynn Snyder Mackler and Amy Arundel, who you know, yeah. my cohort, really great, great, wonderful group. We were yeah, so lucky. You guys are great. I mean, had a wonderful, uh, just the whole lab was phenomenal. And Lynn, Dr. Snyder Mackler is phenomenal. So um, just a really great opportunity. Um, and I did that after uh, 15 years of being a clinician. So I was right. sort of the the old gal in the, <laughs> in the lab, a little bit of the matriarch, but um uh, I just, there was something really wonderful about, uh, going back really, uh, I, I felt during my, the master's work where I was sort of looking forward to the end, just to kind of embark on my career. And this mm-hmm. was just a very different sentiment of going into a PhD program after working for so many years and having lots of good ideas and hypotheses that we wanted to test out and really, really savoring the experience with, without yeah. taking the risk of sounding too cliche, but it was really a wonderful uh, uh, education is wasted on the youth in so many ways. Cause, <laughs> cause I felt like, you know, you're sort of looking forward to the forward end. And this, to, yeah. Obviously I was looking forward to the completion, but um, I really enjoyed the process. Yeah. And I'm excited for us to get to that too, pretty soon. But you mentioned how Tony, when he Mm -hmm. had his ACL injury, that kind of opened your eyes. What more could we Mm -hmm. do with ACL? But becoming a physical therapist specifically, how did that even pop in your head? Because I think you majored in like biological science, specifically Mm -hmm. molecular genetics. And to me, that sounds more like real medicine. (laughs) It was physical therapist in the picture. 
Yes, well, I was pre-med uh, okay. at, at Rutgers and um, I really loved genetics. <laughs> I, was just, I still love genetics. <laughs> I think it's really fascinating to me. So I was a little bit of a molecular genetics geek. And, uh, that was sort of my bias uh, uh-huh. or focus. And then um, I had an injury during college and I had a really great physical therapist who then I went on to work for, Dean Pinciotti, and he was part of professional sports care, which I think has gone through a name change at this point, uh-huh. but um, this is back in the 90s. And uh, I just thought I had interned at hospitals as well, just kind of trying to figure out which branch of medicine I'd like to go into. And I found what I loved about physical therapy is uh, the ability to institute change and, and really make meaningful change on people's like day-to-day lives, but also the relationships, like, cause we had so much time to spend. And that's, that is to this day, something I savor now. Um, in my clinic, we're a little bit lucky because the model is like one-to-one um, for an hour. And I, the, the things I learn and just these, inter- like my patient population is so interesting and mm-hmm. um, the conversations, it's just a, it's really a wonderful career. Yeah. I agree. Sometimes people are like, do you not get tired of talking? And I'm just like, (laughs) gosh, I'd like to think that I should, but I guess, I guess I've really found my passion because I love being a physical therapist too. Huh? Yes. Well, and I think like every hour is a new chapter, right? Every hour it's a, it's a different diagnosis, but also a different person with interesting experiences. Yeah. So it's fascinating. (laughs) And they teach you things that sometimes you would never even know outside of PT. And you're like, Oh, yes. Good to know. Absolutely. Like we're so lucky because we have exposure to people who do lots of different things for a living. Unlike like, my husband works in finance. So his day is a little bit more um, myopic in the sense that he talks to similar types of people all day. And for us, mm-hmm. you know, I might have a producer, a professional athlete, uh-huh. a high school athlete, uh, you know, a chef. Like it's just fascinating. Cook me some food, <laughs> chef. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, you know, you practice in a outpatient private setting for you said uh, probably at least 11 years Mm -hmm. before you decided to pursue that PhD at the University Mm -hmm. of Delaware. What were some of your early experiences in that clinical setting? Maybe that pushed you to go on to pursue that PhD? Mm -hmm. Did you feel something that made you realize, okay, there's something more that I really want to tackle at Mm -hmm. that point? Mm -hmm. That's a really good question. And what, so at the time when I finished my uh, graduate work for physical therapy, it was at the master's level. So I had an MPT Mm -hmm. clinical uh, degree. And um, oddly, I, I, one year, uh, not even like six months after graduating, I started working in uh, for a nonprofit research foundation. And um, we started doing research right away. And I was very quickly and keenly aware of the fact that there was a little bit of degree bias, if you will. Like, for example, if I would go, um, you know, a couple of years in when we had some data to present, if I was presenting at a meeting, um, there were a couple of interesting uh, situations I was in where I was asked by an orthopedic surgeon, like, oh, you only have a master's? That was, that was interesting. And then one going to pick up my speaker credential, like, oh, what position are you picking this up for? Like, and it was just like, it was sort of interesting. Yeah. And, I, and I understand it. There, there's, there's, um, there's a lot of rigor and nuance and uh, wonderful things that come out and, of doing MD, PhD, or you know, whatever advanced degree you're looking on getting. And I think for the level of research we were doing and the level of research we were, uh, the journals we were publishing in, um, and my own interest in, like I said earlier, like I've got these ideas, let's see how this 
fetters out in the biomechanics lab, the, the, those were all my sort of, there was like a, a, a sort of this Venn diagram of variables yeah. that came into it. And just, <laughs> but the main one being, um, I'm just like a pretty uh, a type A personality and pretty oh, yeah. driven. So, uh, very driven. Uh, <laughs> thank you. Beyond but, uh, driven. <laughs> <laughs> probably to my, my husband's chagrin at times, but, uh, <laughs> but, but I just think, um, I didn't want to look back and I had a really candid conversation with Dr. Snyder Mackler at, at isokinetic one year. And she's like, you, you need to be doing this. Like, you're doing the research already. You're doing all the work. You may as well get the credit you deserve at the degree level that this commands. And I'm like, you know what, you're, you're absolutely right. Yeah. So I did it. <laughs> okay. So yeah. when you decided to do that, mm -hmm. what was the transition like from working in the clinic versus mm -hmm. strictly doing the research? Were you even working in the clinic yeah. at all? The university was really wonderful. So I sort of was doing um, the COVID hybrid academic experience before COVID. <laughs> so oh, this was like, okay. so they allowed me, I was going to, uh, two weeks a month and um, and then just lo logging on. I was live for every class because the, the, the curriculum is such that it was two years of didactic work and then two years of, you know, data collection slash, you know, analysis. The interesting thing with having been been a clinician for so long, I came in sort of armed with ideas. So we were able to start the data collection really early on in the process. It still took it took four years, but that was pretty cool because I I was able to start data collecting after you know year one, which is a little bit unusual. And Amy and I did a and Ryan Zarzicki. I mean, just so many wonderful people in that lab. We did a lot of collaborative work together, and it was it was fun. Like I said, I loved going back, like taking a bunch of statistics classes, things like. Um, I, I was using readily like writing, but always deferring to the biostatistician, but now having like a more expanded uh, knowledge base of that. And like, oh, this is why we're doing this. And this is really a good statistical tool to use when we're looking at X data. Mm -hmm. um, but, and obviously that program is so respected, you know, for obvious reasons. I mean, all the, the but there, it was interesting because it was, it was different. And I think now since COVID, I think people are really, um, it was more of a European model PhD, if you will. Um, mm -hmm. But there were there was a little bit of reticence on some of the professors' behalf, which was completely warranted. Just like, well, we, you know, we need you here. Are you going to TA? I was like, yeah, I will be here two weeks out of the month, like at your disposal, uh -huh. <laughs> and I'll be live for every class, interactive like this. But this is before we really had Zoom, and you know, yeah. and so it was interesting. It was a little bit of a, a learning curve, I think, for everyone. And I didn't want to. Um, give a sense like I was trying to exploit um exploit a situation if you know what I mean I wanted yeah, to be super uh, yeah I I wanted to be deferential to the, the 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 curriculum to the system and making sure um nobody felt like I was doing less because exactly. I was doing slight things remotely so it was a little bit yeah. of a dance but um I can assure you <laughs> I took every exam. I was, there was no, <laughs> there was no slack cut. <laughs> yeah. Now you said it was, I guess at the time it was more like mm -hmm. European style. What do you mean by that compared oh, to yeah. the state? That's a good question. Cause if you look at people who do their PhDs in Europe, it's more, there's really no didactic curriculum associated. There's just sort of this, um, um, evolution of learning and reading and studying under, um, you know, a mentor or two based on the institution, like if they pick a project where in the US, we're still, we still have that very traditional model of like, you know, I, I had about, I have to go back and look at my 
transcript, but about 56 to 60 units of, of, of actual classwork. So, yeah. you know, in advanced physiology, many statistics classes, uh, biomechanics, of course, several courses um, in, and in Europe and elsewhere in the world, that's just not necessarily the case. They don't typically do structured classwork. It's okay. more, yeah. So I think it's more of a professional model, if you will, like that actually, that model probably would have suited me a little bit better, but to be fair, I learned a ton, you know, it was really wonderful to go back in sort of the classroom environment and, you know, doing group projects and um, personally, and again, I'm biased because I went through that particular system, but I do think there's a lot of um, upside to that because there may be things, you know, our own confirmational biases. I wouldn't have necessarily explored that on my own, like reading doing yeah. a deep dive into a certain aspect of the curriculum where we were sort of forced to take. We took ethics classes and it was also very multidisciplinary amongst many PhD programs at the university too. So we were taking classes with the engineering students and um, oh. uh, yeah, so that was really great. So we had um, uh, lots of uh, collaborative efforts across programs Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, different, different PhD tracks, even some of the master students were in some of our classes, which was really great. And I really, I really thought that was a wonderful aspect to a more US based PhD curriculum. But on the flip side of that, as a professional for people going back, I can see the real allure of um, a more European style PhD, because you can still maintain your career if you're yeah. going back later in life, and you have children and, you know, financially, it's, tough just to kind of put the brakes on. So, but having said that, I do think COVID has helped in the sense where there's now, oh, let's, let's entertain the notion of a more <laughs> hybrid model yeah. because you, it, it's, it's a win-win quite frankly, I think. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. funny that you say that because after I took my orthopedic exam. I didn't know my score yet. I immediately started journalism school. And I remember I met with the mm-hmm. advisor and I'm just like, is there a way that I can take these classes online? This was before COVID even happened. Mm-hmm. And he's mm-hmm. like, there's no way, Taiwo. This is a yeah. very intensive master's program. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden COVID happens. Everything's <laughs> <Yeah>. online. <laughs> Obviously, I'm not happy that COVID happened, but I'm just like, well, I can still work and do classes online because they have to figure it out. So I agree right. with you. It allowed me to still make some money while I was in journalism school. Yes. Well, I yes. am curious because uh, Amy, it sounds like she had um, Snyder Mackler for um, her mm-hmm. preceptor. Who did you mm-hmm. have? Same. Yes. We, uh, she was both of our advisors. So Lynn's, uh, Dr. Snyder Mackler's lab. Oh gosh, she's a rock star. There was probably six of us at the time. Um, Amy and I were on the same exact track. So we started at the same time, finished at the same time, but Ryan Zarzicki, who does a lot of work like in the neural world of, um, looking at cortical excitability after ACL injury, which I find completely fascinating, like Dustin Grooms, Meredith to put all of their wonderful work. Um, so Ryan was, um, about six months behind us. And then we had, um, Elizabeth Wiseland. I mean, just doing so much great work in the OA realm, so any uh, Celeste Dix came and started right after us. So um, there's probably any like a, a moving, almost uh, <laughs> amoeba-like transition of students. And there's always wow. about four to five to six that she's advising at any given time. That's impressive. And she's, yeah, still, she's, she's still doing that too, right? Yeah. At least from what yeah. I've seen. Yes. Yes. Now, when you started your PhD, you had 
obviously many years of clinical experience, but I imagine there were probably some areas as a clinician or just maybe things that you might've viewed and not saying that it was a true weakness, but maybe there were areas that you could develop. What, maybe Mm -hmm. what were some of those areas early on in your studies? Yeah, it's a great question. Like I said, I think, you know, I think I'd been working let me do the math. I was working for 14 years before I rematriculated, if you will. And, um, you know, and I'm, I'm in the sports ortho world. So we get into our own silos, don't we? So there were things like, I remember taking an advanced physiology course, and we're talking about like the peg test and frequency of movement. And the way I interpreted a question was completely from my bias of like orthopedics, like, oh, I'm looking at, um, um, how well this this test can be done from a accuracy and precision perspective. And the yeah. professor's like, no, 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 we're looking at like Hertz and like cycles per second. And it's, it's really fascinating. Cause I'm like, wow, I just, again, taking that sort of more myopic sports ortho lens and the way we look at things and then broadening that vision. And I think that was one of the more remarkable things that came out of like, oh, hey, let's look at this more macro versus micro. And I think we all can kind of sometimes get guilty of that, you know, and work and life socially, you know. Right. So I think that that to me was a really nice reminder of, um, I, t- I, I try to do that, like even with a diagnosis, like, hey, let's look at this like larger pictures and make sure we're not missing any nuance. But I thought that was pretty fascinating. And that was one um, specific uh, situation that stood out to me. And there were several like that along the way. And I think, again, just the, cross hybrid um, uh, nature of the program where we had so much interaction with other disciplines. I thought that was a huge strength because they're the way they look at a problem is just their prisms a little bit different. It doesn't make it wrong. Doesn't make my vision wrong, but Mm -hmm. I'm like, Oh wow, what a wonderful way to combine forces and um, attack this particular issue from many different angles and get ostensibly a better outcome. Yeah. And like like you mentioned, I think for every clinician, it's always important to still look at the bigger picture, not just specifically the actual injury itself. Now you did your PhD and I know that you also took the exam to specialize in orthopedics. Was this in between that? When was that? Oh yeah. I never did my OCS. That's a funny, (laughs) I don't have my OCS. I probably Many people want me to have my OCS. I think at some point I'll do it. <laughs> um, I just never, yeah, I don't have that specialization. And congratulations, hats off to all of you who who have done it and successfully, because it's no, uh, that's a, it's a it's a wonderful designation. And I would love for us as a profession to do a better job of highlighting what that actually means for clinicians who have successfully done it. Um, in the way that I feel like orthopedic residents, orthopedic surgeon residents do it. Oh, I, I, I'm a fellow of X. And I think that should be something maybe um, complete sidebar. We can we can do a little bit better as a profession just because it's such a wonderful um, accomplishment and all of you should be heavily applauded for going through the process. So I, I learned a lot. And so, yes. yeah, and I, I feel like a lot of things you learn, you still can look back and say, oh, this is why I did this. And I'm still mm-hmm. learning. It's not like I'm yes. a very old clinician, but it was a very, uh, just like the PhD was a real mm-hmm. commitment to, mm-hmm. to really studying. Well, I, I do want to ask because there are some people that obviously want to be involved in like mm-hmm. major league soccer, different mm-hmm. things like that. You know, you weren't, you weren't born in California. You mm-hmm. made your way out there because of your master's mm-hmm. and you happened to get connected with 
that soccer population? Because I know that I saw that you were a director of rehab, a physical therapist mm-hmm. for LA Galaxy. Mm-hmm. Like, how did you make a name for yourself in California? Because mm-hmm. this is a competitive soccer state yeah. in general, right? Yeah, difficult. You, you know what? It was interesting because I, I volunteered. I um, uh, What was nice about having connections with like Dr. Mandelbaum, there were absolutely some inroads made. And quite frankly, some might think my connection with my brother-in-law may have been an inroad. And in fact, it was quite the opposite. <laughs> but I, I honestly, I didn't want to be perceived as this is like a nepotism situation. Uh-huh. I was really, really. So I, have, I have actually a funny story about that, which I'll tell you in a second. Yeah, I would hear but, it. Um, but I started volunteering. I, volunt- I started volunteering with Chivas was the first team I was associated with. And I would go down and do a free Thursday clinic after training. And then I would do Saturday game coverage. And um, I just, I just absolutely loved it. Like, I think one of the wonderful things about this profession, and and if anyone feels this way about their profession, like, I honestly don't feel like it's work. So I just love being a part. I love being immersed in it. Um, so, um, people were like, why did you do that for so many years? I'm like, you know, but, but obviously your hard work and your work ethic, you know, for the most part, largely pays off. So that's where I started. And then obviously we shared a stadium with the galaxy. So then there was a lot of cross, oh, would you help with this patient or if this one's a little bit um, <clears throat> more difficult or we're having some struggles with this particular player getting back to play. And then I took a, a position with the league to be one of the co-chairs of their um, something called EMARC, which is the Medical Assessment Research Committee. And um, basically we oversee the research being done by the league and we're really expanding that we have a really wonderful relationship with the university of delaware from a human ethics irb perspective and for those uh individuals that are working with clubs want to do research we now have a really sort of organized uh avenue to do that but um getting back to um if someone if someone listening is really interested in getting involved i would say you know, I did work at the youth levels. I did work with like local clubs. Obviously there's no shortage of that in Southern California. So many kids are playing, but I would volunteer and do sort of ACL mitigation workshops for them. Or, uh, do you need help with screenings? Um, the, um, also did some work locally with Pepperdine university. And again, just very voluntary. I would say the first gosh, six to seven years of my involvement were unpaid. <laughs> and um, some might say you're crazy, but I, I, but I think like, uh, particularly with MLS, particularly at that time, there was not a lot of money and the budgets were tight. And um, I recognize that, but all of the relationships that I had with the players, um, you know, at that time, uh, uh, Ante Razov, Jesse Marsh, um, uh, Claudio Suarez. I mean, we had just, Bob Bradley was coaching and Precky. So you had you know, Jesse's now, you know, making incredible inroads in the premiership and mm-hmm. Ante's at, uh, you know, as an assistant at LAFC. So it's, um, and it becomes this sort of family and you just grow this incredible network. And I say network because I don't want that to sound like an exploitive thing. I'm just a network of friendships. And, um, yeah. you know, you have these kind of like really wonderful experiences taking care of these people as players and now they're becoming managers. Yeah. (laughs) But the one funny story I wanted to tell you, because I did not tell anybody my relationship with, with my Uh brother-in-law and where Chivas was playing New York and this is Red Bulls at the time before NYCFC was in existence. And it was a playoff game in LA. And um, 
my brother-in-law had a ridiculously spectacular game. Chivas wound up losing and mm-hmm. I waited till the very end of the game and he was being interviewed probably by one of you uh-huh. <laughs> and I, everyone's back in the locker room and I waited because I was very subtle about it and I walked up to him and I gave him a big hug I'm like hey congratulations and the film was still rolling and I walked back into the locker room and the guys were like what are you doing <laughs> hugging the enemy <laughs> I was like, oh, oh I didn't know funny. the cameras were still live. I'm like, oh, that's my brother-in-law. <laughs> that's like, really oh. funny. <laughs> so the cat was out of the bag. Well, initially, because like you mentioned, MLS has came such a long way regarding to even mm-hmm. just like the medical um, procedures that are in place at the time for you it was still like up and coming when you were mm-hmm. first like going to present these uh, programs to these teams, what was the most challenging aspect about it? Cause I imagine one, yes, you're female. Yes. Mm-hmm. Obviously in sports medicine, we don't have as many females mm-hmm. period. Mm-hmm. What was it like for you initially? Yeah, I think there were certainly some challenges. Um, but again, I think that the way I always view that is like, look at that as a positive, right? So you don't I'm victimize is the wrong word, but I never looked at something like, oh, hey, this is like insurmountable. Just oh, this might take a little bit of a different workaround. And I think if, mm-hmm. um, that might be a good approach to take if you're thinking like, oh, I'm getting doors closed on me for X reasons. It's like, uh, well, just the persistence, the subtle persistence um, can help. Um, but uh one, I think one of the big obstacles we had, like the, the budgets were small, you know, and we had very little access. It's completely different now, but like in terms of testing, you know, no one had isokinetic testing. No one yeah. was doing EMGs. No <laughs> one was doing any of this. And in fact, most of the medical teams were completely voluntary too, you know, the, the, um, which is sort of changed, um, depending on the club, but the, uh, yeah, it's, I, I, it's really wonderful now. Like we just had a call, an MLS call earlier this week and looking at, you know, all the sophistication and now EMR, we didn't have a centralized EMR. Right. So like, you know, you're, we're trying to like look at data and like, uh, you know, extracting it from people's Excel sheets <laughs> at the time. And now it's, I mean, just massively sophisticated, like in a dashboard system. And we can look at things like, uh, really granularly and really promptly. One of the wonderful things I think about MLS because of the, the, the way the league is set up and it's a single entity league, which some people may think that's a shortcoming from a research perspective, it's unbelievable because we have, we have access to all of the player data with their consent. We have a wonderful, wonderful mm-hmm. relationship with the players union. And I think that's really important. Unlike uh, perhaps some other sports in this country. Um, one of my missions as the as the director uh, for the medical uh, committee is to make sure their needs and their wishes and their voices are heard the most because it's yeah. absolutely athlete centric. It has to be. And maybe some of that bias comes from me looking at Tony going through um, an ACL, a meniscus, an Achilles, uh, two groin repairs, because now yeah. as these players age and, um, you know, retire and our dads and, um, you know, looking just to lead a normal active life and have a, you know, their 2.0 version of themselves in their second career yeah. after retiring. It's very, very important that we consider that. And so I think one of the, oddly where I was uh, 
uh, early on in my career, I didn't want people to know about that relationship. I oftentimes bring that up now because I want people to know that's where my heart is. My heart is with you. And I think, I think that's such an important component of like what we're trying to do with MMARC and our mission is completely um, uh, predicated on the wellness of the athlete during their career and absolutely extending afterwards. That's awesome. So how many, how much hours do you spend with doing like MR? I'm assuming this is a weekly thing you typically. Oh yeah. Daily. (laughs) Daily. There's always some, there's always something, you know, in terms of, Oh, guiding people. Oh, Hey, I want to do a project. They've never done an IRB before. I'm like, okay, let me help you. You know, I want to do a project looking at data in Philly and some other teams. So we have a whole process in place where we have, uh, you know, they have to apply for a, we have this whole smart sheet system where they have to apply for a basically permission to proceed internally. You have to have an external IRB and then it goes through the players union and legal just to make sure everything uh, um, is sort of copacetic and everybody's needs yeah. are being met. Um, the one cool thing about all of this, because if you look at like the model the, that Jan Ekstrand has set up with UEFA, we can absolutely, and our goal is to sort of recreate that, but even um, perhaps in a better way, because we'll have year-long data across the board for an entire league. And that's unique because mm-hmm. UEFA is more sort of, I guess it's more um, from a competition perspective, it's more like tournament-based. Mm-hmm. And many leagues throughout the world are not sharing data. In fact, that would be blasphemy <laughs> to like share data amongst clubs yeah. because they think it's proprietary or there could be some trade secrets or things like that. And I think, Oh, you know, again, prism, let's flip the prism. It's like, no, this is to benefit. If we can expand that uh, cohort. So the population is, you know, over 35 teams versus two or one internally, we have a real opportunity from a, um, just from a power analysis perspective to really exploit that in a good way, really help more people in a shorter amount of time. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So do you feel like um, your role as a rehabilitation consultation for some of the major league teams mm-hmm. like uh, Toronto FC, Seattle Sounders, mm-hmm. I think LA Galaxy mm-hmm. helped you transfer some of those skills to this, this MRC position or do oh, you think, yeah. yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Because you, cause I have a, a relationships with many of the teams and I guess some of the, I, I've been called by some people like the Olivia Pope of difficult, <laughs> difficult cases. So sometimes I'll have someone come in like, Oh, we're just having trouble. A new set of eyes. Like that, you know, how that goes where yeah. you've been looking at something and you're like, Oh, we're just not getting where we need to be. Um, and sometimes just having another, another look by a new set of eyes but I I really love that component of it so that's why I'm a little bit of the the Switzerland because I can't really have an allegiance but um, I love working in that um, capacity and then absolutely because then those ideas go directly to the league and then we Mm -hmm. say um, hey we've got a hamstring issue or we've got you know look at what happened in Atlanta this year with this like sort of random uh, multiple Achilles tendon. I know I'm in Atlanta yeah. and I'm yeah. like, what the heck? I, yeah. I need you guys to be healthy. Yeah. So we literally had a call that next Monday and we're on it, you know, working with Margo Patukian and Jeff Vegas, And we're like, okay, let's figure it out. And this is the beauty of the EMR because we can go back. Where are they in comparison to the league? Where are they in comparison to historic data? What has changed? What variable? So that's the beauty of centralized like electronic medical record reporting and sharing data across the league, because otherwise you're, you're looking at this in a silo and sometimes the the facts could sort of get distorted. Mm 
Mm-hmm. But when you're looking at out of the league, did any <clears throat> sort of away players get injured there? Or are they all Atlanta players? Like, did you have yeah. somebody come in, you know, it, um, is it a field situation? Is it an environmental situation? Is it a loading issue? Like, and now we have all of that data available to us to like um, tease through it, you know, in a Sherlock Holmes type of way and really do yeah. your detective work and, and figure this out because you, you can't wait till the end of the season. I mean, the, right. you can't, you can't risk another injury. You have to be quick. Right. So then again, this, because of the sophistication and the evolution of what we're doing internally has been really wonderful. And we still have work to do, you know, we're, we're by no means at, at, at you know, at, at the top here, but um, yeah. I think I will say this and again, biased because I'm involved, but I, I absolutely love the group I work with and um, they are, everyone's so committed to, um, and Jeff Agus obviously being a former player, a national team player, that same thing. It's, it's really player centric. I, and I say that in a way that I don't think a lot of other leagues could say it in the way that MLS can. And I'm really proud of that. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, I know you said that you love, you know, the whole consulting to me, you have to gain a level of respect and players and teams have to know that you know what you're doing mm-hmm. but are there some challenges that comes with that position that you didn't foresee when you first were elected to be an, a consultant for some of these teams sure yeah good question that's a really good question um uh yeah absolutely I think um like you kind of brought up being female is a little bit challenging at times now not so much but I think sort of 10-15 years ago maybe a little bit more challenging um it's been really great to see the growth of women in the league like Don Scott had a performance at Miami total yeah. rock star right like I love that she's a friend too I'm just I, I'm a huge fan of her work what she's done at the national team, what she's done at the FA, but like her going in and completely revamping a system and having all of these athletes should be a great guest for you, by the way. Uh, you know, uh, I, yeah. you know, I am trying to get her. I don't even know how I can get a contact for her, but if you happen to know a way you let me know, cause believe me, I have been Don Scott has been on my list. I will help you out. I will help you out. Um, but like, you know, for her, I just think that's fascinating too. Cause she's uh she's just a trailblazer, you know, she's the first, um, for MLS. I know there have been others for other leagues and, and, um, but I just think that's really wonderful. And I think the more that happens and having people of color and, um, having minorities represented in a way that they need to be, because our sport is so wonderfully diverse, you know, Mm -hmm. you, from, from a cultural perspective and language, um, uh, like look at our national teams, particularly the men, like, having a lot of people of color represented right now in the starting level. It's fabulous. And I think that has been um, a really wonderful thing. And I think having women come in, um, I don't want people to think that is necessarily a, um, a non-starter, if you will. Cause I, I think there's been wonderful evolution. So many women working in the league now at different capacities. Um, And you see that in the NFL and the NBA. And I just think it's a wonderful uh, momentum. However, I've always said this, I never wanted to be the person to check a box because I didn't want to, I, I didn't want to feel like, oh, uh, we need a woman. We need, we need this. We need that. And I think, with at, you. you know, so it's, it's an interesting dance of like, yes, having representation, but not doing it at the cost of where I'm not going to be respected as others because of my gender. 
or yeah. race or culture or anything like that. And if people may feel differently. That's just my own sort of, cause I'm so driven. And yeah, I no, I was just going to say yeah. it's, it's the drivenness in you because yeah. you mentioned something very interesting and I was telling someone like, I don't want to be picked because I played professional soccer or because mm-hmm. I'm this, I want to be picked because I became a therapist. I became a journalist. I've worked for that. Yeah. And even as a journalist, I don't want to be picked. Oh, just because you're a physical therapist too. Like I want them to pick me because they say, Oh, she's, a great storyteller or she's a great interviewer, you know? So I I am with you on that. I like to work for, for the things that I'm I'm given, which is, which is great. Well, you're very good at what you do. (laughs) Well, thanks. Well, I want to talk about velocity physical therapy because you are the owner since 2011. Are Mm -hmm. you a one woman show for this? I have a colleague that works with me. Um, we're looking to hire if anyone's interested. <laughs> Santa Monica, <laughs> but, um, right? Yes, yes. Okay. It's not a it's not a bad sell. Um, but we um yeah, we're very uh boutique-y, if you will, and not in a way, not from like an expense standpoint, but just in terms of like it's one person an hour. We really try to like get granular, get to the etiology quick so that we're really making headway quickly. And um, I think for me personally, I really like that model because other models, um, and, I, and I was this person at this young, like 20 something year old aide where I was doing most of the interventions with patients, you know, the PT would do the treatment and then pass them on to, to me. And I just, mm-hmm. I didn't have the knowledge base necessarily to like make these nuanced biomechanical corrections. And everything is the assessment, right? The whole treatment is the assessment. Mm-hmm. So if we're, if we're 45 minutes in, I'm like, Oh no, 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 no. Let's watch Like, let's watch this. Look what's happening at the subtalar yeah. joint. Like what, and that I think facilitates uh, better outcomes. Yeah. And I want to get your honest opinion because I've loved every job that I've worked at, but I know that I have made a cautious effort to find companies where it's just me. I'm mm-hmm. doing the whole thing. I'm doing the assessment. Mm-hmm. I'm doing the treatment. Do you think that it's important for especially early clinicians to mm-hmm. have that ability to be able to assess and to be able to also observe the exercises? Or do you think that, mm-hmm. you know, it balances itself out, whether they have a tech to do the exercises yes. and they do the actual assessment itself? It's a or- great, 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 great question. I actually was in this situation where I had hired somebody and I had made the recommendation, like I wouldn't necessarily bring a new grad into my particular environment on the sole reason of volume, right? Because you just, we're not seeing enough people a week. Like, yeah. so I think there's something to be said about maybe spending two years where you're seeing more volume and maybe some more case differential, seeing some neuro, seeing, because I always joke, I said, you know, uh, neurology is the new orthopedics, right? Like every orthopedic injury is <laughs> neurologically based in a lot of yeah. ways. I think there's some real upside to like having those experiences. And if you get it in residency or you get it during your, you know, your curriculum and during your uh, clinicals, great. But I do think there's probably some real upside for doing that for a year or two. And then if you're really interested in getting a little bit more nuanced and, you know, where your patient population is perhaps smaller, you're spending more intense time. But I think that might be a great opportunity to do a fellowship or study for your OCS or SCS, you know, something like that. But that's a a wonderful question. And um, I think if I as a new grad came out, went right into my model, I would have, um, I think that would not have been the right decision for me. Cause I think the exposure to the things I saw earlier on in my career helped shape the clinician I am today. And when you were first starting out, like the outpatient setting that you worked mm-hmm. in, mm-hmm. was it where you had texts where you had, mm-hmm. um, 
other people to delegate the exercise or were you able to go through it all on your own? Yeah, no, I was, I was in a more traditional model, like an insurance based model. And I saw pending, I think we had about 45 minutes for an eval, but we had two to three patients an hour. And I worked with techs. In fact, I just had dinner with my first tech uh, on last Monday, which was so wonderful. But, uh, and, and again, upside, because I think that was an opportunity for me to help like shape their careers if they're interested in going into like sports medicine or pursuing becoming a PA or, or PT or PTA. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, there's the mentorship aspect of it, which I think I lose out on, you know, with my particular model. But I think from a patient benefit perspective, there's tremendous upside to like kind of being with us through the continuum of the intervention plus the, you know, actual execution of, of the exercises just because it's that constant assess, reassess, and pivot, right. right? Okay. Oh, this isn't working. We do this, or we're not getting enough activation here. We do this. And I think if you all, if you have that sort of prescribed ahead of time, there's no opportunity because the tech so, just right. really doesn't have the knowledge base to make that, you know, determination. Um, yeah. so yeah. well, Holly, you presented and everyone's going to be surprised because we're not going to be talking about ACL, even <laughs> though this is like your wheelhouse, you've done so much work, which we, which I for sure definitely appreciate it. But at the isokinetic conference, you talked mm-hmm. about patella tendinopathy. So mm-hmm. we're going to just talk a little bit about this. Yeah. And, um, for my listeners, if you really want to hear about some of her ACL stuff, definitely check out all her research. It's on her website. There you have it. So, mm-hmm. you know, with patella tendinopathy, we we know that in the knee, there are many generating, you know, sources, whether that's the bursa, the fat pad, the patellofemoral mm-hmm. joint. What are the tests that helps you pinpoint that it's likely the tendon that's the source of the patient's symptoms? That's a great question. So when we look at provocation and uh, whether it's uh, resisted extension from like an isokinetic perspective, um, that's probably the one. Uh, I just had a goalkeeper and youth goalkeeper, like a U14 and on um, Thursday. And she was super provocative doing like a straight leg raise after some pretty grueling, one would argue overloading (laughs) over (laughs) the course of the week, preparing for surf cuts. So um, I think um, obviously palpation, I always find that inferior lateral aspect of that tendon to be a hot spot for people who are presenting symptomatically. So I always sort of palpate in that area, looking at patellar mobility, looking to see if there's any obliquity with the hip and um, in that it is that uh, symptomatic knee is that hip sitting anteriorly because oftentimes that will give us some clues on the, the length tension relationship of the hip flexor uh, hip flexors and quad. And mm-hmm. if that's the case, I always call that the sort of David and Goliath fight where you've got, you know, two, two, yeah. two and a half feet of muscle fighting <laughs> this poor little small. <laughs> so we want to oftentimes mitigate that. And, um, you know, early on, if, if you're having a lot of difficulty with engaging um, the quad, I often will start back chain or work in frontal plane, just get people moving, right? So if you can get them to safely and um, rather asymptomatically engage their glutes, hamstrings and lateral hip. And oftentimes we get sort of the endorphin response and you'll get a little bit of that um, good sort of um, um, pain mitigation response, um, find things that they can do again, cause it's about empowering the patient, right? You, it's not what you can't do. It's what you can do. And that's how we create that workaround. But mm-hmm. the patellar tendon is tricky. 
it is tricky um, and um, it can present itself in a variety of ways. Um, it's been fun do, sort of doing more of a deep dive, getting out a ligament and going into tendon. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but I would say like, obviously assess the hip, look at the foot and ankle, make sure there's no lack of hypermobility issues there. Mm -hmm. um, but then from an absolute tendon perspective, make sure patella mobility is in place and that, you know, if there's anything we can do from a topical uh, perspective or a pharmacological side just to help offset get them into the next phase of you know granulation get them out of that chronic inflammatory phase perspective yeah. that might be a great idea and yeah and depending on who's coming in whether it could be someone um you know a weekend warrior trying to run a 5k that they haven't run in a long time yeah. um so making sure we're looking at strength is it is it a lack is there a strength issue we look at the strength uh, differentials between agonist and antagonistic groups. So we can look at quad hamstring, quad glute. And if you're seeing big differentials there, make make the intervention. Um, I look at the frontal plane a ton because that can oftentimes place in the They could be um, loading the patella tendon because of uh, lateral hip weakness. You know, there's just excessive load because we're underutilizing the frontal plane. Mm -hmm. um, and again, that's a great, there's great opportunity to intervene. It's typically pain-free working in frontal plane. Um, and that's a win-win. And when we talk about doing activities that they can do, mm -hmm. um, I think it's also just important for clinicians to understand like a patient's irritability level. What are some mm -hmm. questions maybe that a clinician can ask mm -hmm. their athlete or, or even just a mm -hmm. weekend warrior to mm -hmm. get an idea of their irritability level and how they can really progress them and not cause more harm than good? Sure. Great question. Um, so, you know, just, you know, people sort of uh, give the VAS score a hard time or that whole zero to 10, but that's their zero to 10. So it's, it's, it's appropriate, right? And, it, mm -hmm. and it, it's pertinent. So um, oftentimes we can ask them just with like ADLs, um, uh, are you in a sedan or an SUV? Is it difficult to get out of a low seat? Um, can you, can you get down your stairwell, you know, is, is descending stairs a difficult option? So we'll talk about the basics because oftentimes, um, that's the case, like this young goalkeeper, excuse me, that I saw the other day, um, she, she, I saw her prior to going to a goalkeeping training session, she couldn't do an isometric quad. <laughs> set for me without pain. I said, well, we might want to rethink this training session you're about to go to. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so I think it, 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 you know, we try to make it as specific to that person. Uh, do they live, uh, you know, do they have a multi-story home or a multi-story apartment complex to navigate with no elevator? Um, uh, those questions are specific to their particular situation or what sport or activity, or is it just as simple as like, I need to function throughout the day and I'm ha really having a difficult time, yeah. you know, just getting uh, in and out of my office and like getting out of, you know, a chair. And yeah. when you consider irritability level, is it high irritability? Is it six and sure. above? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So again, like nebulous or, and subjective, yeah. right? So because oftentimes uh, you might ask somebody that question uh, and they may report with a six or a seven and they are able to jog, you know, so we, so I, so, so, um, you know, your two might be my five. And so we have to just be careful with, um, making definitive objective, um, uh, decisions based on like what is subjective reporting, subjective, you know? So I think it's yeah. appropriate, you know, for the patient. And then, and there again, getting back to what we were talking about a few minutes ago is like the, the relationship 
you know this person. Are they more of a higher reporter? Um, do they, I, I, I often uh, chuckle when I have pain, like I have a high pain tolerance. Okay, where are we now? A nine. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, like do I need to nine. take you to the hospital? Okay. <laughs> exactly. But then that's, that's their nine. Okay. That's their, yeah. their reality is their nine. And that's, that's okay. I'm like, okay, let's put you down to a seven. Like that's our goal for today. Let's try to see if we can mitigate some of that um, pain and dysfunction for you. So I think that, you know, it's, it's very individualized is basically. Yeah. Now, if someone is presenting already to the clinic with high irritability, what is your exercise prescription? Like, do you just kind of maybe just get to the simple, just isometrics, nothing too strenuous? How do you, how do you progress them? Great question. It depends, you know, so um, can we get them doing some cyclical loading on a bike or, you know, do they, do they have a Peloton at home? Can we use some tools like that's the other interesting thing. What do they have at home? What's going to be easy from a from a compliance and adherence perspective, like for for what we're what we're prescribing as clinicians, and what can actually get done at home? Um, you know, it might be super basic. Um, we could do some basic BFR with just you know straight leg raise unweighted. Mm-hmm. It's all about the analgesics in the beginning, right? It's just getting uh, addressing pain because with pain, if we can get pain down, then we can stop that cycle of the neurogenic inhibition, which then, you know, obviously we can get some quad or, you know, whatever muscle group we're talking about, we can have some resultant atrophy from disuse, um, or just the, the decreased cortical, um, efferent output from a motor perspective, we really need to make sure that we're really mitigating pain because pain, um, uh, although it's a wonderful marker and we respect it, but, you know, from a functional perspective, if it's left, um, unchecked or untreated, it could be, uh, really difficult for them functionally, you know, from a, from a strength perspective and then overall function. Yeah. And once we end up mitigating the pain, maybe just during their ADLs, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes I'll have athletes who will be a little confused and you have to educate them again, how a tendon works, say they'll, mm-hmm. they'll be able to participate in their sport. They have no pain. And they say, you know, later that night I had pain how do you educate mm-hmm. each athlete regarding mm-hmm. to this? Because oftentimes I think athletes, they don't understand how tendon really works and how yes. the body responds to load. I almost have this conversation daily and I think be ahead of it. You know, so when you're counseling your patient and on the email, talk to them about how the healing response is. Look, talk about adaptation curves, like the difference between muscle and tendon and bone and nerve, how they all are kind of in different places on the adaptation curve. But also one of my favorite uh, uh, sort of metaphorical uh, stories to tell is like, this is a bit of a roller coaster. We are going to get to the top together. Mm -hmm. We will, but there are some little bumps in the road. You know, you're going to kind of have your downs and your ups, but the, but the steady slope is up, slope is up and we will get to you to where you and I want you to be. Um, and we will do it collectively together. And sometimes it takes a little bit longer than your neighbor had that, their experience with or your teammate. Yeah. Um, Cause everybody's a bit unique from a biochemistry perspective. But I think that's really an important conversation because intellectually then they're prepared for, oh, I'm a little sore. And that's not a bad thing, right? That's, right. that's adaptation of the tendon. And that's, that is uh, tendon remodeling. And that's what we need to happen. But if that conversation is done prior to them actually getting sore, <laughs> completely different interpretation of that mm-hmm. for them. Right. So I would say yeah. that would be one of my like uh, best pieces of advice clinically um, give them potential case scenarios ahead 
so that they intellectualize it. The best, I think one of the most valuable things we do as PTs is patient education, the empowering the individual, right? They don't want to rely on us. They shouldn't rely on us for a long period of time. We're a source of resource for them, a source of guidance. We prescribe, but then the idea is to get them, you know, independent and autonomous in a way that they're then ahead, like they know, oh, this, you know, I, but oh, I remember Holly told me this a, a year ago and I can intervene on my own, you know? Yeah. Um, so and I, I think, think that even important. goes with even like just actually loading the, because t- some people, and I know when I was an athlete, I think I became a physical therapist because I had so many injuries and I was mm-hmm. frustrated and I never knew mm-hmm. why I had pain, but even just understanding that you're, you might have some discomfort when you're exercising with, but it's a Achilles tendon issue mm-hmm. because the tendon does need a remodel. So I agree with you. I, I think there are things I wish I knew as an athlete that could have set me up to be, maybe I could still be playing. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> for good, which I'm, which I'm happy about the over 30, over 40 leagues. <laughs> <laughs> Do you play now? I'm very really curious. I, still, I might join well, your I, team. Yes. Well, I was playing up until I had my son. Um, and then I, wow. I was just telling my husband, I'd love to get back. Well, we, it's wonderful. And that's another awesome part about our sport. Again, huge bias, but we can play, uh-huh. you know, later in life. And it's really fun. We have a lot of adult leagues in SoCal. So absolutely. Next time you're out. Yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. I know, you know, what's interesting is after I um, finished journalism school, I was like, you know what, I'm going to like try to find a soccer league and life has still been so busy. But then right. when I look at people like you, I'm like, she has, she's married, <laughs> she has kids, she's doing all this stuff. Like I should be able to make time to play soccer, you know? <laughs> Well, Holly, I know that the final thing is, okay, an athlete needs to get back to their actual Mm -hmm. activity. What Mm -hmm. are some milestones or um, things that you consider before you clear an athlete and, you know, Mm -hmm. not necessarily clear an athlete, because I'm Mm -hmm. assuming they're still playing. They're not going to just be out of their sport, but at least you kind of let the reins loose and let them continue on their own. Sure. A great question. So one of the things um, I do, I do a, um, a pretty robust strength assessment, and this could be done, doesn't, doesn't entail uh, isokinetic testing. So if you get a really good handheld dynamometer and get a good setup, um, particularly for leg extension, I find that handheld, I fixed mine because I, I just can't provide enough resistance for some of the athletes we would be seeing, you know, from, uh-huh. so if you, if you have fixed points where you can actually fix the device, so you're really getting a more accurate representation, but we'll look at quad hamstring, hip extension, external rotation, uh, abduction, adduction, plantar and dorsiflexion, um, hip flexion as well. And then I, I'll, I'll map that out over our course. So I have an Excel sheet, we follow it out and we might test that at multiple points because we're looking, it's fluid, right? So what, what one muscle group presented a couple of weeks ago, uh, where we're, oh, let's shift our goals a little bit. And then um, maybe an unintended consequence, we lost a little bit of strength there. So we pivot, right? It keeps mm-hmm. us on it which I love another wonderful tool, which I would encourage everyone to consider getting because they're super cost effective now is a, is a surface EMG. Um, You, I personally use M trigger. I have no relationship with the company other than I like it. Um, (laughs) But uh, there are several other models and makes out there. They're about $450, I think. Um, But the, remember what we said, neurology is the new orthopedics. So if there's a a cortical issue there, right? If there is some underlying neurogenic inhibition, particularly with tendon, we see that a ton um, mm-hmm. where that could persist, where we need to get the cortex firing appropriately. Efferent, is that afferent loop doing its thing? Is there an issue with the interneuron? 
And I mean, we won't have all of that granular information, but what we will know is that, okay, there is a difference between what's happening on the right and left quad. And then the assessment then becomes the treatment, particularly for athletes. You're like, okay, here's your EMG. Let's use this during training or during, during physical therapy. And we'll see, oh, you know, and they're competitive, right? So, okay, Mm. let's get your microvolts to look similar. So I think that's a great tool, a biofeedback. So the EMG is the assessment and the biofeedback during the actual um, PT intervention. That's a great thing. And then some of these wonderful tools, like if you have access to them, some of the the force decks and like looking at uh, ground reaction forces, if you have that ability in your budget, if you don't use your iPhone, um, a, a, a calf raising so you can get wonderful apps out there that will help you measure you know looking at heel rise testing what um, app did you say what, what um, app did you say do you know a I, I will get back to you on that there's um my jump is wonderful <laughs> like looking okay. at vertical and there is one for specific for calf uh, uh, uh yeah and looking at calf raising or just if what you could do like a good little hack is uh put your measuring tape up have them do it next to a wall and just videotape it and then slow it down. You know, you, oh, it doesn't need to be super fancy. That's yeah. a very feasible one that yeah. I would probably do in my clinic. Oh, yeah. that's a good so one. Super cost effective. And then your objective, right? And then again, you can show that back to the patient. Are you looking at, okay, looking at, okay. And this is important because we're looking at rate of force development and power generation, right? And overall strength. Yeah. So sometimes fascinating, like I have a player come in and from a strength perspective, everything's looking good, but they keep getting these recurrent bouts of either tendinopathy or, or muscle strain. And what's and they're meeting all of their metrics. And then suddenly the EMG looks very different. And they're like, okay, we've got a more neural underpinning here. So we have to just spend some time on perhaps some underlying neural inhibition that hasn't been addressed appropriately. And um, it's, it's fascinating. And I would, I would counsel people to say, if they're having difficulty on, uh, getting a player back and just like, Oh, it's just not adding up. I would say, look to the surface EMG. If you have that tool available to you, cause it, oh. it, it's, it's really been illuminating. I'll be honest with you. Yeah. That's because yeah. like you <laughs> mentioned, even, um, during that presentation is that even though they've had this injury and maybe they've recovered to some extent, sometimes mm-hmm. the brain is still preoccupied about this Absolutely. given injury. Huh. It's fascinating. So that when we look at the cortex, I mean, our brain is like, uh, the helicopter parent, (laughs) right? What it's trying to do is prevent you from re-injuring yourself because it will shut down motor efferent output. It will, in order to protect it, like, don't do that. You know, we're looking to offset this whole pain response. And then the afferent feedback either becomes amplified or not. And then what's really fascinating is what's happening in that conversion. So remember, um, if we shake off our neuro cobwebs, um, coming into (laughs) the afferent and remember... And remember that relationship between into the dorsal root ganglia and when you're getting that interneuron conversion. And I think they're like the translators, right? This is what happened. I always tell my patients, okay, your joints are like GPS units. They're giving information back to the brain, right? And then the brain interprets that. That's the interneuron sort of conversion translator. And it's a game of telephone. And sometimes those messages you know, what the dorsal, what the interneuron may perceive as incoming information from the tendon may be like, Oh, that's really mild where it should be. No, this is really a bit of an issue. So it should mitigate efferent output or the reverse, right? You have that information coming in and it's, um, you know, it's mild and it's being hyper amplified by the interneuron. And then you're like, oh, efferent out. And then we get this sort of mild disuse atrophy. And then we get this perpetual cycle because now we have a pain, uh, a, a, a weakness driven pain 
uh, syndrome versus just um, an inflammatory state. Yeah. So finally, yes. because you've given so much advice for medical providers, there are actually some athletes that tune into some of these episodes, which Wonderful. I'm quite impressed. Yeah, they're yeah. soccer players. Oh. Um, what advice could you give to an athlete who may be one of the frustrated athletes that seem to constantly be getting this type of injury? Really talk to your clinician or your PT or ATC, whoever you might be working with in terms of I'm frustrated because of X and we need, and I want to be able to, my goal is, is, you know, to get back to play for this particular tournament, this particular game, this part of the season um, to play recreationally. Um, and I think if you're not getting the sort of the answers or you're not making the, the gains, be a little introspective and to make sure, and this is rarely the case. Most of my patients, I have to pull reins back as opposed to <laughs> encourage to do more, <laughs> but make sure you're, you're, you're really being honest with yourself. Are you doing more that's prescribed? Is that perpetuating the overload or are you doing too little? Are we underloading? So th- make sure you're just kind of internally checking, uh, uh, to, to make sure like what, what has been prescribed to you and what your physical therapist is interpreting is what you're loading is what actually is being done. So there's that, yeah. um, keep a log, keep a log of like, so that way we can get pretty granular and work back with you. Okay. Let's see your log. What did you do? What were your symptoms like? Um, did you ice? Did we do BFR? Did you have a ner- uh, you know, Normatec available to you? Did we have any of those tools? If not, that's perfectly okay. But that way we kind of like work back again. It's, 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 we're detectives, aren't we? We were like trying to see and really map out. And the one other visual, in addition um, to kind of talking about that whole roller coaster analogy we were, we were speaking about earlier, show them the like the, a dose response curve. And like our whole goal is to keep you under this line, right? And, and you're yeah. going to have high, very high performance capabilities without jumping over into that sort of inflammatory state. And, you know, and it, it's interesting for women too, because that can shift certainly with age or differences uh, during their menstrual cycle, when estrogen is surging or not, we know we have a ton of receptors on our tendons and ligaments for estrogen and progesterone. Cause so there should, could be some cyclical uh, element to that. And there again, uh, Don Scott and Georgie Brunes out of uh, yeah. uh, Brussels is doing tremendous work in that regard. And I think those are good conversations for us to have with our female um, athletes, because that, that can be playing a role too. Are they on birth control or not? And with birth control, usually we have a little bit of a dampened response. So that's usually a little bit more in check for those that that aren't. So again, these are all conversations because we have to think, okay, if it, if, if we ruled out um, strength, neuro, um, we kind of have to expand our cap. Obviously it's outside our, our scope of practice, but we have the conversation like, Hey, is yeah. there some, perhaps some adrenal pituitary element here? Um, you know, we have to think of reds and female athlete triad and things like that as well. Yeah. That's really yeah. good. That's really good because yeah. no athlete yeah. likes to do the same rehab for three to six months and not Ooh. see any type of oh, result, not so. any change. And that, yeah. and that's on the PT side, I would say the advice to myself yeah. would be, well, then we need a new set of eyes. Cause maybe I'm not exactly. seeing what I need to see. <laughs> and there, and that's to all the athletes out there. Um, you, we want to empower you. There is no shame in switching clinicians because if, if it's not the right fit or we're not seeing what we need to see, please go get second and third opinions because it's everyone's goal. It's not an ego thing. Everyone's goal is to get you back to where you want to be, to be the best version of yourself. I like that. That's good. Well, Holly, I have to say that you are, you are definitely one of my biggest role models in the sports Uh, medicine world. And I'll probably be picking your brain for quite some time, especially now that I 
will be entering the journalism world and I'll have to yeah. be cross-checking all my facts with <laughs> someone that's much more smarter and with much more experience wow. than me. But we are so yeah. appreciative. I know the sports medicine population is so appreciative of all the work that you've done. And I know that I'm going to still see you in all these future conferences because you just pop up everywhere, not with your family, <laughs> just you, but you're always there. So I do drag them along. Funny thing, my, my husband's oh, joke you? is, yeah, oh, yeah, they were there. They were there in Leon. Um, my oh. husband jokes, my six-year-old has more frequent flyer muscle miles than he did when he was 35. <laughs> and that's, I'm that, sure I that's would love true. to talk to you about that because that's a whole nother little podcast of being a being uh like a female working mom researcher and i how conferences may be able to help moms or 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 women that are looking to start families so we don't have to drop off the radar and how we can facilitate maybe having an au pair service paid au pair service maybe you know all sorts of that might be a topic that might be a topic we we will talk about in the near future yes yeah so it's an interesting thing and to to, again encourage people like hey we're going to make it easy for you to attend or easy for you to be involved as opposed to well i can't come for 15 years because I have kids. Yeah, Yeah, I agree. I have no kids, no family yet. So I feel like I'm unattached. I can just go wherever, wherever it seems necessary. So yeah, exploit that. Um, But and please, very flattering. Thank you so much for your time. I know we'll see each other in the near future. Maybe you'll start to see me eventually covering a soccer league that you're working in and you'd be like, Hey, I remember her. And please, please don't ignore me when I wave at you. Okay. Never, never. <laughs> Such a pleasure. Thank you so much. Just speaking with you. Okay. Thanks so much. Likewise. Bye. Okay. Take care. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to the episode with Dr. Holly Silvers Grinelli. Make sure that you rate, download and share with your friends. We'll check you later.